just so you know, the Nazis ha have a long tradition of being involved in yoga. In fact, there was like a, uh, a Nazi commune in the 70s in North Carolina, and the, the leader of it got really into yoga and apparently wrote a couple books about Nazi philosophy and yoga. So, <laughs> What a country, man. This is a melting pot where all different cultures can come together. You have a little bit of Nazism from here, and then you have a little bit of yoga from another part of the world. It just comes together in this beautiful, what a great society. Hello humans, it's Dan. Welcome to Power Report. I'm late to recording the intro for this episode, so I'm going to be really quick with it. But um, in the midst of the end of election cycle barrage of news, one thing you might have missed is a right-wing militia's plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, in response to the COVID lockdowns. Because being told no for these people was tyranny, and their president condoned such an action through a tweet saying, Liberate Michigan. Of course, the tweet is not directly connected to the actions, but when you have a political climate, when the president is condoning such things via Twitter, a medium such as that, then of course you're going to um, unfortunately breed this kind of deranged uh, behavior where you have this foiled plot to kidnap the governor of a state because you don't like being told to wear a mask and refrain from being outside for a short period of time to prevent giving other people a deadly disease. Whether Donald Trump stays in office or not, two things will remain. The painful fact that much of our government was complacent in allowing Trump to condone this violence and allow the country to get to this kind of level to begin with, and that these radical actors will continue to permeate throughout our society. Again, beyond voting, few people are teaching how to do real things to get involved with the government. That's why we did our episode on Hold the Line and the Hold the Line Guide. Hope you found that interesting and that you're able to go back to that if you haven't seen it already. But this guide is going to be about fighting fascists. And to give me that information, I wanted to go to someone who was an expert. So I was able to find... Spencer Sunshine, and I have been researching about writing on and counter-organizing against the far right for about 15 years. Many of the links that Spencer or I mentioned will be in the description box underneath this video or in the show notes of the podcast if you're listening to that. Also in the show notes, you'll find all the other links you'll want to make sure you're following Dan from the Internet and Power Report on all social media platforms. There's going to be a lot of election-related coverage, maybe some debates, maybe not, but definitely a voter guide in the very near future might already be up by the time you're listening to this. So check that out, youtube.com slash Dan from the internet. I'm also on Twitch now, twitch.tv slash Dan from the web. Here's the interview with Spencer. Spencer, thank you very much for joining me and coming on. I saw, I first heard of your work through Jared Holt's podcast, Shitpost, and where he interviewed you and kind of talking about the 40 ways to fight fascists. And this is something I've been interested in um, not just fighting fascists, but just more broadly, the idea of what do people do beyond watching the news, right? Because um, just going out and telling people to vote is not enough to save um, our country from the place it is in right now. There are a lot of um, people who are in power right now who are okay with the fascistic aspects of American culture um, gaining even more power. So my first question to you is what made you realize that there was a need for like an actual written out steps and a list, a guide to show how people how to fight fascists. 
Well, before, as Trump was campaigning, actually, in 2016, we saw, like, a huge rise in organized far-right groups, um, not just neo-Nazi groups, but new groups that were a little more ideologically moderate, but were very aggressive and violent, groups like the Proud Boys and others. And there wasn't a lot of, there was some media um, attention to it, but there wasn't a lot of actual on-the-ground organizing. And this continued up through Charlottesville in particular. Um, I was at Charlottesville, and um, the thing that struck me the most there is that no national nonprofits tried to turn people out on the streets. Um, we were there were about equal numbers of, of Nazis and counter protesters, um, and that it was clear there wasn't a lot of um, grassroots counter far right organizing going on at the time. The Antifa movement was expanding, and they do this work, but a lot of people did not want to get involved in it. They had either uh, a misperception about how much violence was involved or even the veneer of, of violence or even the philosophical acceptance of it was too much for them. So I was really frustrated that um, grassroots groups weren't, in, weren't either popping up or being, um, no one was encouraging their formation. And so I wrote this guide. The original version actually came out in 2018 but we wanted to, to redo it, change the language and a bunch of other things. Um, and, and it seemed to be like that the time was ready for uh, another rejection of these ideas. So I was really trying to spur people. I was really shocked about how much far-right um, organizing was going on, how many new groups were appearing and how little was being done about it. There were a lot of media articles. There's always national groups like the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, that write good articles about it. Um, but but um, you know, uh, information and research is uh, necessary but not sufficient to counter uh, far-right groups. They're very aggressive. They can do a lot of damage to communities. They hurt and kill people. They change the political temperature of the communities. And you have to counter-organize against them, and people just weren't doing it. So this was my attempt to spur people into taking these kinds of actions. And I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad folks are realizing and kind of snapping out of the complacency of the moment. I've spoken on the show about how my kind of concern with politics is not, I mean, I have many concerns with politics, of course, there with everything going on, especially in 2020. But one is the lack of action from everyday people who seem to understand how bad things are and how bad things are going. Understanding the material conditions that we all are in, all, all are in that like, we need to like make rent if we can, and, like put food on the table if we can and all that stuff, which is especially harder during this year. But even with the capitalistic pressures that kind of hold people back it seems like there's no sort of desire from the mass public to even like sort of see how bad things are and then even if people see how bad things are like what to do from there and actually getting them there and so on the first point of seeing how bad things are i think there's still a lot of people who freak out when people throw around the word fascist or fascism um in the united states we're taught in our bad history classes that that's something that is over with and gone from like the 1940s, just like fascism, end button, no more. Um, but I, I guess as a very preliminary thing, I don't know if that are many people who are watching or listening to this podcast who feel this way, but convince someone or like, how would you convince someone or explain to someone who is on the fence of even the idea of that F word, that fascism is here and present in the United States if you somehow do not already see it? But I think coming from a fascism expert, I think it would help to um, sort of hear your take on it. 
Well, we look at, you know, I and others look at um, usually like street level groups and the more extreme organizations. And so it was interesting for many years before Trump, people just didn't believe they existed. And they're actually, Trump is sort of the culmination of um, a new wave of far right organizing that started around 2008, 2009 with Obama's election. That's when the Tea Party popped up. That's when this new move of the uh, Patriot movement, uh, which is tied to the militias, popped up. Um, and he's sort of like the summation of this whole movement. So for years, we were documenting this and talking to people and be like, you know, there's organizing in your community here in New York. We were like, you know, there's these like far right skinheads who are attacking people. You know, there's groups, the pro-white separatist Holocaust denial groups that are organizing. And people just said, oh, well, we don't believe you. I mean, it was it, it was pretty interesting. Um, so, you know, generally we found out if you showed people what was going on directly in their community, you really had to uh, produce a lot. In the past, you had to produce a lot of evidence. Um, you had to show who the people are. You had to show that they were inciting violence or that they had or committing violence or that they had other egregious views. Um, it's a little easier now. I mean, I think this is one reason the guide has gotten attention because uh, people can see, for example, especially out west, like large armed groups of hundreds of people are showing up. They're murdering people. Um, the extreme violence of the far right is useful. I mean, it's, it's awful, but it's useful in a way because you can show this to people and be like, these murders have happened in your community. You know, these attacks have happened. Um, and that usually gets people that usually gets people going. Unfortunately, with Trump, people have already sort of made their decision about whether they love him or hate him. I mean, I don't think you're ever going to convince a Trumpist. You could show all the racist things he's done and the, his connections to far right groups. But I, I don't think his supporters are going to be convinced. Um, I think America in general has a real problem with people thinking that political activity only consists of voting, you know, and some of this is like you must vote because to some of the people um, saying this, like to them, that is the, the summation of political activity, unless you're going to get somehow get involved in the Democratic Party as, as one of their bureaucrats or something or, or, or get elected. And so, you know, there is a big room and a, a great importance to grassroots organizing, consistent grassroots organizing, not just, you know, occasionally there's big protests and people get involved and there are movements, occasional movements that last a few years, you know, the civil rights movement being the famous one that lasted like a good decade um, of active uh, grassroots organizing. And, you know, people do this work. They do it every day. They do it every year. Um, but the number is very small and there's just not a big um, commitment, especially from progressives to engage people in this kind of work. A lot of everyday people don't think about that. Um, people either don't want to think about how bad things are or they just say everything's fascist. You know, they use this kind of um, inflated rhetoric, you know, civil war, about to have civil war. There's going to be a coup. Trump's a fascist. And then at some point, though, it becomes like crying wolf that people can't. It becomes difficult to tell when because we are in a dangerous situation. At, at what point there's a real danger. You know, if you said everyone's a fascist for years and years and years, no one's going to listen to it. And it makes it hard to, like, get your analysis clear. So I think it's just a problem in general with American politics about engaging people in grassroots political action. The right's actually better about that. The Christian right in particular, they they have been very good about getting their base to be mobilized and do work year after year after year. And they're some of the more influential uh, and influential block on Trump and a lot of his muscle. Yeah, I I cannot um, agree with what your summation is and what your kind of analysis is much more than that. Um, 
I've been amazed at seeing the power of the far right at not just mobilizing, but just a political strategy in a way that sometimes almost makes me feel um, as a leftist kind of annoyed that leftists can't understand political strategy on a level that the far right and the alt right does. And it's kind of for a dangerous reason to like they don't understand it. Um, like my kind of backstory is the Berkeley, UC Berkeley had this like free speech. I mean, the free speech movement is a thing that exists in history in the 1960s. And UC Berkeley is the forefront of that. But that kind of um, icon, iconation, I guess, or like that kind of visual of Berkeley in that campus was utilized by the far right as I was going there to kind of illustrate the idea that, oh, liberals and people on the left don't care about free speech. They're social justice warriors who um, care about getting triggered and all these different tropes that have made conservatives trillions of dollars, or at least billions of dollars in this case, on the grift money alone. But what has what was also happening underneath that, which is more insidious, was that the and which is what leftist organizers were argue, were warning about, was that the social justice warrior free speech parade clown fest that happened was all a cover for the fact that every time there was another one of these protests that the conservatives were putting on, more and more patriots, proud boys, these types of people were showing up on weekends in Berkeley, California. Now, like, you wouldn't choose to go there. You would not choose to live there. You would not choose to live in the place that Berkeley, California is if you weren't kind of down with some of the values and the principles or could at least, like, let it go and slide as you go on your day-to-day basis. It's just like, that's not the place you go if you're not a type of person. <laughs> but there are these people who are coming from out of town under the cover of these free speech events or these uh, conservatives trying to speak on campus and facing pushback and crying censorship about it. Under the guise of that, fascism is creeping in. Under the guise of that, there are people who, no, 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 I'm not here about free speech. I'm here about white speech. I'm here to make sure that this is a, I feel that my people, my kind, whatever I describe that as or describe that to be, are under threat in this country. And I'm here to assert myself and protect against that threat. And so the misunderstanding of strategy that I think a lot of progressives have um, in seeing that the alt-right and some of the conservatives like Ben Shapiro, they don't need to be talking. It's like super PACs. Like, they just coordinate outside of the bounds and they look the other way when the other person is there. And so fascism is a scary thing, of course, but it also creeps up on you even in um, what are considered to be within the realms of normal dialogue and politics. So I think that it's great that people like you are doing that work to shine a light on that and help us cut the nuances between those things because i think you said i think the american public is through our educational system but through a lot of other reasons just like fundamentally and wholly unprepared to deal with fascism in this country yeah yeah the right has a long-term strategy about how to do these things and um particularly in the period before what sort of ended with charlottesville all these different factions of the right were working together. So you would have, this was during Trump's campaign and the first part of his um, administration. And it really, it broke with Charlottesville where the the, uh, Republicans finally decided, oh no, we actually can't have outright white nationalists, explicit white nationalists um, as part of our our coalition. Um, But they were able to work together before that. They used some of these provocative tactics like the free speech things in Berkeley, 
Yeah, I mean, this isn't really a tactic of the left to go into super conservative areas and have confrontational demonstrations. Um, partly because it wouldn't play good in the media, partly because the police wouldn't protect us, um, partly because it's just not how we do things. Um, and so the right has, uh, some of these tactics have come out of the, the white nationalist right, these more provocative things came partly out of, um, you know, 4chan culture, this online gaming culture, which was tied up with, with neo-Nazi stuff. And they have, neo-Nazis in the U.S. have always really liked the um, provocation as an organizing style. The neo-Nazi movement actually was established in the U.S. Intentionally, the guy who did it, George Lincoln Rockwell, um, he, he, was, uh, he had worked in advertising and he used um, the Nazi name and the swastika to get attention. He was, he was like more of a, a, a typical conservative in many ways. He was sort of McCarthyite conservative, but he was like, oh, I can't get right-wingers mobilized unless we really shock them. Uh, I'll do that by using a swastika. The swastika will get media attention. Then I can follow that up with organizing. So, in, and in a way, this tactic that they developed you know, which we're still seeing. I mean, the demonstrations in Portland that have gone on, such as the one last weekend, are sort of an evolution of this tactic from 2016 of going into very liberal areas and uh, trying to provoke people. Um, uh, started as much more far right than it sort of ended up being. It's, uh, it started with much more white nationalists. It sort of happened organically. And in many ways, it was an organic tactic, I think. Um, and in many ways, it doesn't speak to people at all. It's just, uh, it's just like you said, it's part of a grift. It's a message for their base that they're going to use for fundraising. A lot of things on the far right, it's kind of unclear what's a grift, what's a financial scam, and what's politics. This is particularly clear with sovereign citizens, where they use all, they teach you all these techniques. It's this weird far right movement that started in the 70s, but they teach their members techniques about how to not pay taxes and how to pass fake checks and all this, like just total financial scams. Um, so this is pretty usual for the far right, for it not to be clear what's a fundraising device and what's politics. Some of this has to do with their politics aren't real politics. Many of them are, you know, politics the way the left thinks about them as some kind of political analysis, you know, with a theory and praxis. Some of it's just motivating people on these emotional appeals, uh, and they, they get people to assert their identity and to denigrate others, usually different kinds of minority groups or, or progressive movements, you know, feminists or, or leftists or something. So this has been a very effective strategy for them. It's been a very effective appeal to their base. Um, they've used it, this sort of going into areas and talking about free speech. It's, it's just bullshit on their part. They don't care about free speech at all. They have, I mean, they show this with the, uh, the thing about their revival of the culture wars and about, you know, free speech on campus, because what they're really trying to do is shut down speech of professors and others on campus whose, you know, views they don't like. Um, you can see at their rallies, they'll surround and attack reporters, too. At this Proud Boy rally in Portland last week, they beat at least one reporter up. There's video of them being kicked in the face. So, I mean, I was surrounded by Proud Boys at a rally and almost beaten down once at one of their rallies, and this was right as the whole free speech thing was starting. So they clearly don't believe in free speech at all. I mean, it's really just a ruse for them to sort of like uh, get into their, especially their own media system, although it has affected the liberal media system too, where they're like, oh, we're so worried about free speech. And people like knock the camera out of somebody's hand. And you're like, well, well that may happen, but that's, that's not the same as like beating a reporter up or trying to bar people from, um, you know, speaking in colleges. 
So um, it's been an effective tactic for them, and they're, they're still using it. Uh, it. It has no actual substance to it, though. Yeah, I, I, I want to just highlight that, because that was a lot of my like more recent political awakening as well, just to say that, no, free speech is just a phrase. It, like, it rings a bell in people's heads, and people who aren't thinking very politically go, oh, free speech, I care about free speech. And then that sort of like bell that gives a pass to more nefarious actors to while no one's looking under the covers of you know even slight nuance and detail um are able to suppress opinions that they don't like and call that free speech i mean republican hypocrisy is just like a it, it's a never-ending loop so we can go into that forever but i do want to get into this here fine guy that you have prepared um but before that i think you touched on something really important there which was like the reason the left oftentimes doesn't organize like this is because we don't have like, partially it's the numbers, but also it's the issue of safety. Like all of the people we're wanting to organize against are heavily armed and ingratiated with the surveillance state and with um, the police state. So it's hard for us to really mount any sort of like fight back without putting ourselves in at least some sort of moderate danger. I mean, that's the result of, getting our politics to this point. So I guess we would look back on our uh, behaviors with that. But where before we get into the guide, what do you sort well, of... I, wanna, I just want to say, the right wants to hurt people. The left generally doesn't want to hurt people. That's also a like, good point. This is consistent with their ideology and inconsistent with ours. Yeah, that's also true. It's like, I think the a lot of leftists, I think the most leftists, there you have some like weird tankies over in the corner, but like, it's whatever. But yeah, you'll, you'll have most leftists who are... <laughs> against violence and that's the reason they are so strong in their beliefs meanwhile you have the right wing which at its most american moderate is ambivalent to violence like they're very happy to play um their call of duty games and go out on shooting ranges and can you tell how californian i am um but like they're more than happy to do these things and participate in violence culture at minimum but again, like even a lot of this conservative rhetoric is being used as a cloaking device for the people who think that Western civilization, meaning European white civilization, is crumbling because uh, immigrants are coming into the country and they want that to stop by deadly force if necessary. And that's just like a difference in the political ideology to begin with. So I think that just only makes my question more prescient. How does a leftist think about safety when they're fighting fascists? Well, you should definitely think about safety. Um, there's all different kinds of, of, of questions of safety here. You know, you should try to stay anonymous when you do this work. Um, you should be very careful, especially in rural areas. We did a bunch of uh, I did a bunch of work with a, a group in rural Oregon about this stuff, and it's another level of danger in rural areas. Um, you may wish to moderate your level of confrontation, depending on how much community support you have. Um, a lot of things you can do, though, there's no danger, and this is part of uh, what's in the guide. A lot of, you know, um, it, it, it is true if you go to de demonstrations, especially, you know, conflict-driven ones, you may be targeted at the demonstration or afterwards. And it is true if you're doing work publicly and they figure out who you are, you could, they can identify you and you can be harassed at home. Um, but there's a lot of ways around that, and there's a lot of other different things you can do. Um, uh, so there's no, I think people often don't want to do the work because they get a little over-concerned. This is like a, you know, tough, like people do get threatened, but they don't get threatened as much as you would think. 
and there has been violence against you know anti-fascist counter-organizers but again it, it's a far less than one might think that it would be so i mean there is real danger but the danger is like far lower than is the general perception and there's many things you can do that that don't present any danger to you at all and just in general you have to like understand the community you're in how much support you have in that community um how much the community and people also overestimate how much the far right loves to threaten people they love to attack people um and often they have ideological support in in conservative communities but especially conservative communities aren't real thrilled about people using violence in them against others that same whole thing about free speech and democracy can be used against them you can be like hey you know i agree we should all have you know i, I believe in the american democratic system and we should have free speech so i understand like why you're pointing a gun in my face or why you're threatening me, I'm just trying to express my views, you're expressing your views, you know, I'm trying to have a conversation and you're trying to attack me. That doesn't play real well in conservative communities, in most of them, especially rural communities. So there's ways you can get around it too if, if you're facing um, threats against you. Yeah, I like how you emphasize preparation, most of all. Um, we've just got to, or people doing this work, need to know what they're getting into and prepare for that. Know that you're getting into a place where a lot of times uh, these alt-writers like to dox uh, supporters and people who are like friendly to the left who are like fighting against them um, or like basically expose their information online. And yes, of course, that's a fear or something you worry about. But if you're already taking steps to protect your information online, then that's less of a threat. It's kind of like anything else in um, the world where, like, of course, there's varying levels to danger, but if you prepare yourself for the danger, then you're better prepared for anything to happen. So I, I would recommend to the audience that it's a lot like that. And I love the, um, the way you really describe that, Spencer. I think that's really helpful. Um, and getting into preparation, the guide is divided into five-ish sort of places. Um, basically, there's, like, getting started, taking action, being proactive, counter-demonstration, and then there's, like, support and some bonus things. So how should people get started um, as far as the ways your guide goes to like fighting fascists? Um, well, we uh, tell people to get started. Um, a, a lot of people don't, especially progressives, don't really understand the far right. They um, you often have in their head what I call the big black box. Like it's just all one thing to them and they don't see the differences. You know, it's, there's different ideologies in different groups. And the right's just like the left. You know, it can be very divided. People divide over ideology. People have personal disputes. Some groups work with other groups. Some groups don't. At certain times, groups work together, and at other times, they don't. And so, you know, it's uh, the first thing you need to do is, is read a little bit about it, uh, understand what the lay of the land is, because you're going to be um, working against specific groups, right? These are real people. It's not just some abstraction. It's not just some boogeyman movement. You're going to be counter-organizing against other organizers. You need to know a little bit about what their landscape looks like, who they like and don't like, which kids play together, um, because you will use these things in your, in your work, in your community. Um, and this helps dispel the big black box, right? It starts to break it up into discrete elements. Um, then the, you know, after you learn a bit about this, figure out what the first thing you should do is you find other people to work with. This stuff is a lot of work. Um, it's too much work for any one person to do themselves. Even if you're just tracking what goes on in your county or your city, like it's going to be too much work to anyone to, to do it well. So you want to find another few other people to do work with. Um, you might find different allies than you normally or different kinds of people than you normally do political work with. 
I think, especially if you're sort of deep in the left, people get used to working with people who are exactly like them, who believe a lot of bigger things exactly like them. Um, this works different. You may be working with people you don't normally work with who come from different political traditions, um, come from different backgrounds. Uh, and the main thing here is that people, and it's really a, 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 a put out or get out kind of thing, which is one reason I like the work. You either do the work or you don't. There's not a lot of room for hangers on. So you want to find people who are going to, you know, roll their sleeves up and do work and, you know, willing to work with others and, and get this work done. So it can produce some unusual coalitions. I actually kind of like that. Um, and then once you've found other people, you've learned some about the far right, you want to start collecting information about what they're doing in your community. Um, this is a very localized thing, especially at this point in the game. There are national organizations that talk a lot about national goings on. You know, there's a lot of reporters on this beat now. There weren't so many like four or five years ago. Now there's tons of them. But they're mostly, you know, paying attention to big things that are going on with the, the big groups are doing on a national level. That They can't possibly pay attention to what's going on in every local community, but that's where it's going to affect you if people are organizing, if they're making threats, if they're, you know, forming paramilitary units, if they're influencing public officials, if they're having demonstrations, if they're threatening communities. And that's where your real ability to engage in, engage in is. So you want to start collecting information on the, the specific groups and activists who are in your community, far-right ones, along with the people that you've, um, you know, figured out who to work with. And that's the, that's the first step and really the most important grounding to take. The other, the one other thing is um, as much as you can remain anonymous while doing this, like even if you become public, like it does become a problem. They can't threaten everyone. The good thing is there's many more of us than there are far-right activists, so they could never possibly threaten everyone. But the best thing to do is to remain as anonymous as you can for as long as you can, because then it's just not an issue. Like, so that's just, you know, the, the first stop thing. So while you're, as you've gotten together and are starting to collect information, don't tell anyone you're doing this. Then you'll have a head start. <laughs> that, that's all very good advice. I like the emphasis on local things. I think oftentimes we get excess, obsessed with national politics, thinking that that's the end-all be-all of where our political action ends, much like with thinking that voting is the end-all be-all with our political action. But no, um, voting is just the start, and local politics is arguably far more important than national politics in the sense that there are fewer players in the game. So it's an opportunity for you to really make a bigger impact than you, like an outsized impact than you really have. The way that powerful make an outsized impact in our political process beyond their one person, one vote is money. They have a wild amount of money and um, that can buy you a lot of propaganda and a lot of buses full of fake protesters to protest your mask mandates around the country. We don't have that money, but what you can use is your local political power because if there's only three people arguing over a political subject locally, one of those three people is going to win their argument locally. You're just like fighting over fewer people. And local is where you can have more of a direct impact because people kind of face that or see what's going on. I guess do you, do you have any, other than just saying, look online, check your local newspaper, because online is a little bit of a labyrinth and local newspapers in some cases might even be preferential or impartial to local fascism. But is there anywhere you um, recommend people find information on their like what's going on locally like is it just facebook like what's going on oh um yeah newspapers are good you can see what they're reporting is even if they're sympathetic to the right they may be more likely to cover their activities 
Um, generally, at this point in the game, most states have somebody collecting some kind of information, and you can go pick out who's in your area. You can go to the national organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center or the Anti-Defamation League or the uh, Political Research Associates or whoever, and look through their website and see who's in your area or state. You can start with state and then break it down. Um, you know, uh, you can search. So you, you find some starting places on the internet and then see political movements want to do outreach. They want to reach people. And then you, you basically sort of become a member of their movement in a way. Um, now you'll basically create a sock puppet, a, a fake account online and start, you know, subscribing to their different, whatever their social media feeds are, mailing lists, um, or watch their videos, who's active in your area, and you start acting like you're a sympathizer and you're, you know, following all their stuff and you figure out and you use that as a, uh, um, your entry point to figure out who's active in your area, uh, what they're doing, and then, you know, it, where you figure out the lay of the land that way. Um, you essentially become a member of the grassroots member of their movement, or you, you pretend you do. Yeah, it's the sneaky, sneaky, the infiltration parts of it. Um, now the second part of your guide is take action. And there are, this guide is, if you're listening to this podcast, it's structured very differently from the Hold the Line guide that um, I talked with Miriam about and a little couple of weeks ago. And that these are just like 40 steps. There, There's details on them. I'll link to the guide in the description or the podcast um, show notes. But um, these parts are kind of divided in steps, whereas the whole the line guide is more chronological. So the second part of this is taking action. It's a bunch of different um, ways that you can take action in this space. Um, can you talk about some of those ways and maybe some of uh, maybe like the stronger ways or things that work the best out of what you listed for taking action against fascists? Yeah. So uh, one thing I was to say, there's 40, 40 things in here and you can do them all. I mean, I probably have done them all at some point in my life. You won't be able to do them all at once. Um, you can pick and choose which ones you like. Uh, some of this is designed for people of, of different identities and abilities. Certain people will get targeted harder by the far right and you may not wish to be so exposed. So some things are, are definitely safer. You know, there's things you can just do at home. So they're available to people who are unable to leave their home for whatever reason. Um, so they don't, they don't all have to be done in sequence. Um, it's a lot of work. So a taking action, um, one of the, the things that really that does have to be done on a local level is taking down far-right propaganda and ideally, ideally replacing it with our own outreach materials. This turns a, a loss into a win. Um, some areas are hit very frequently with far-right stickers and flyers. The big alt-right white nationalist group focuses very heavily on putting propaganda up. Uh, they're called Patriot Front. Um, and so, like, there's neighborhoods here in New York that, like, every month the white supremacist propaganda goes up, so the people in the neighborhoods have to go out. Uh, if you're worried about razor blades behind stickers, it does happen once in a blue moon. Just use a scraper tool. You know, get, get a set of your own stickers or flyers and put them up over that. Um, you know, we want to limit their outreach. We want to limit, you know, when they do that, it's sort of like a dog pissing in an area. They're like claiming the area is theirs. You want to make sure to show it that there's opposition in that area and you're not going to like let them have your neighborhood. Um, I love the dog piss collect... analogy for fascism. That's a pretty good one. You're, you're coming with the hits there, man. 
they're like, I mean, they act like gangs, you know? It's like, oh, this is our turf. And you want to be like, no, you know, putting tags up or whatever they're doing. Um, and he, and, and, and we, in some cases, they are literal gangs. They're still skinhead gangs. And so they are literally doing that. Um, once you've collected information on them, uh, you want to figure out who their uh, most prominent activists are and who are the uh, people who are engaged in violence. Um, find out, get pictures, find out where they work, find out where they live, get information about them, and then releasing it. This is called doxing. This is your most powerful tool. It is uh, legal. It is nonviolent. Some people don't like it. I, I didn't say it's a nice thing to do for somebody, but they're not nice people, and we have to use all of the legal tools that we have in our toolkit to, um, to counteract them because they're using illegal tools. Uh, they're using violence, and they're uh, very aggressive. You know, their ultimate vision is a vision of violence against most people in our society. So releasing information about them, uh, once you've released this information, um, and I suggest different ways that you can do it. We try to target them. We want to contact people in the communities where they live and the place where they work. We encourage people to try to get them fired at work um, and to uh, uh, tell their neighbors. You can put flyers up in their neighborhood. You can go door to door. You can uh, buy a mailing list of who the people live that near them are and send letters to them. Uh, make sure it gets in people's hands. Uh, go to, you know, and tell them who their neighbor is. Go to stores, ask the stores not to serve them. This has actually been a useful tactic sometimes when there's far-right demonstrations. This actually happened in Charlottesville during the big demonstration. One of the, the things people in the community did beforehand was tell all the businesses, ask them all not to serve Nazis who came in, gave them, you know, uh, information about what they might look like, what kind of patches they may be wearing or, or shirts or uniforms and stuff. So we try to socially isolate these people. Again, you can do this even in a conservative community if they're using violence. Um, most like rural conservative communities frown upon this just because it's it's rocking the boat and they don't like that. Um, and then another thing you can do is that we encourage people to look at this in the long term. The far right a movement that's been, you know, in the United States, obviously we're a country founded on genocide and, and slavery. Um, the Ku Klux Klan started in the U.S. in like 1865. Nazis have been in this country for a century. The first Nazi groups uh, started in the early 1920s. They were they were German immigrants who had been involved in the party there. So this isn't a movement. It goes. It's a movement that goes up and down in waves. Um, it's been an unusually long up for it because they're being buoyed by Trump. Um, and so you know we should look at this in the long term. They're not going to go away. We shouldn't go away. They'll go up and down in popularity. And so it's bringing this up because you also want to help people leave this movement. Um, the only way to deflate, you know, social and political movements is to get people to abandon the ideology and move on and do something else in their lives. So I encourage you, there's groups to help people leave movements. They're, uh, the people who leave are called formers. The groups are called exit groups. Um, and, you know, we encourage you when people want to leave the movement to help them through this process because it is a whole process, too. Um, and so that is because that is ultimately the, the only way we're going to, you know, make their movements end is to make the people who are activists leave. There's a lot of good points there I want to touch on. Um, a lot of this focuses on social isolation, which I think is a really important thing to kind of figure out because now we're really in the meat of where I think this is really fun, which is like, how do you deprogram a fascist? Like at a certain point, I used to think that, oh, I'll just continue making videos that people will see. And eventually people will stop thinking all of their racist beliefs. Ha ha ha. And uh, several videos later, not happening. 
Uh, very, <laughs> a couple thousand views later, not happening. Uh, if anything, I just get them to comment on my videos and it makes it worse. So um, it, really kind of hearing that it's the same barriers that kind of keep us in check, which is our sense of normalcy, our connection to our social community, our ability to kind of like go outside and just like act and behave as a normal, regular person. You take those things away from fascists and white nationalists and these people who are um, organizing in the sense, and they start to sort of see the um, harm in the or their actions. Maybe not the harm in their actions, but they start to see that hey, the way that you present yourself, the way that you are treating other people, is not okay to a certain other subset of people, a certain other subset who will react in certain ways to um, kind of prevent your spread or just like generally make your life uncomfortable. And so I think. That's a really um, important aspect there to for people to be aware of is taking away the social um, power that a lot of these right-wing extremists have online. I have a question that I um, hear from a lot of people of color and I resonate with to a certain extent getting to near the end of what you said there, which is on around the idea of formers. Like there are a lot of people uh, especially a lot of people in the black community who would say like, look, there's no former, like whatever, regardless of how you grew up or what like puts you into that kind of thing. Like you're always going to have some of those, um, you're always going to have some of those prejudices. You're always going to have some little bit of bad programming that's up there. M maybe they stop <laughs> getting in cars and running over people in the streets, but it's not really stopping hatred. And there's a lot of effort that is spent online uh, of people who are trying to reach out to um, others who they say are beyond the pale, way too racist. There's even some videos of like black, a black guy, a black man talking to other white people who used to be racist or consider themselves to be in these racist organizations and kind of having conversations with them, becoming their friend and converting them. Like these stories get tons of clicks online and social media, but a lot of people of color, myself included, I rule because that's like, that's not how it works most of the time. You, you can't just do that. And even then, that's a lot of emotional energy to try to prove and justify your existence and being um, to another person who has been trained with an equal amount of energy to not believe in that. So is there, what to you, not to put you on the hot seat or anything, but like what to you is the um, strength of choosing to get people to turn into formers? What's the strength of getting people to quit fascist movements and almost become uh, voices, mouthpieces for leaving that movement and for what progressives like really care about? Yeah, so there's a lot of complicated views that people have about formers. Um, I know a number of them and I, I've you know worked with them and I try to promote their work. Um, so first thing I would tell people, I know a lot of people are, are not comfortable with it. Um, they'll never forgive them. And, you know, and I tell these, these farmers because they're, they're struggling too to move on with their lives and they have conflicts with people. I've had to intervene sometimes in these conflicts and be like, you know, leave this person alone. Um, and, you know, I'm like some people, I tell them, I'm like some people will never forgive you. Um, I would say, the first thing I would say, and I would say farmers, they don't just, um, you know, Nazis don't just threaten people of color. They do threaten people of color, of course. Um, they threaten Jews. They threaten feminists. They threaten LGBTQ people. Um, they threaten leftists. Lots of different people um, are the targets or former targets of former fascists, too. So um, it's just a broader question. Um, uh, you know, you don't have to uh, 
I would say first thing, forgiveness is a political act. Um, this isn't, I think, I know who this guy you're talking about is, who makes friends with them, and um, I don't think that's the preferred strategy. You know, we usually wait till they reach out. Um, there's organizations they can reach out to. There are certain people who do try to engage with them and facilitate this work. A lot of it is once they've reached out, then you start working with them. And a lot of the people who do this work are formers themselves. And, you know, um, I really appreciate that they, because they could have just moved on with their life, that they're sticking around to sort of help other people over the bridge. So, again, I think forgiveness is political. This isn't an ethical thing. Um, asking you know you to let go of your anger it's just like it is the most the best thing we can do our best outcome is have people leave their movement like just for us from our own political viewpoint that's the best outcome we can have and we really just from a tactical perspective want to promote that um, also you don't have to do it you don't have to forgive them you don't have to do this work with them um, other people are doing this work the best people to do this work are formers themselves you know, if you don't feel comfortable with it, just please don't get in the way. You know, you don't have to interact with these people, um, but do let them do let them go on their way. Of, you know, there's a real problem with recidivism. If people are too um, won't accept them leaving uh, this movement, they'll go back into it, and that's the last thing that we want. This is a really a big problem, and this is one reason that the farmers need help leaving. Sometimes they get so deeply involved in it. Their job is tied into it. Their relationships are tied into it. Their friends are tied into it. You know, this is who they, this is what they do with their life. Um, and it, it takes a while to move out of that. Um, so there's real practical reasons that we, we stress this. Um, and again, if you, don't, if you don't feel comfortable doing this, uh, you don't have to do it. It's not like something that requires really masses of people to do. But it is a really important political thing. And it, it's the, it's, uh, you know, you can isolate people socially, even once, even if you have you've doxed people, gotten them fired from their job. Well, now they're sitting in their house and stewing. And they have more time to do, possibly have more time to do activism. The, the best outcome is to get people to no longer be Nazis. And we don't necessarily want them to be on our side. We don't need them to sing Kumbaya. We don't need them to love, you know, people that they formerly hated. We just need to politically neutralize them. You know what I mean? Like, they can go become stamp collectors. They can become everyday Republicans. Like, I don't care what they become. They just need to stop being Nazis. Yeah, I hate And, and white groups, there's actually been a problem where some people are claiming they're not white nationalists, but they're becoming, you know, really serious Trumpists. And we can't accept that. But if they want to become a more run-of-the-mill conservative who sits at home and votes Republican, that's that's their choice, you know. Yeah, there's – I, I like to – remind people that um politics is fought on a number of different fronts and so if there is a front that is working on the margins somewhere like again this goes back to this whole leftists and strategy thing like break it down think about it for a second if we can convince former um f these formers to do the emotional and uh, labor or whatever of talking to other people and getting them out of the movement that way Meanwhile, we're working on a political angle to vote the fascists out of power to the extent we can. We're also working on the streets to make sure that they have less of a presence, working through the courts and the criminal justice system to make sure the fascists within those systems don't win. Like, we fight on all fronts. That's the whole point of, like, having any sort of coalition and, like, winning a damn thing, which it seems like liberals on the left have forgotten to do, so I guess it's worth reminding them. So, like, I ultimately come down your side of, like, look at... Not everyone is going to love every single position or tactic, 
but there are ones that work for a reason. And as long as we're still like reading up on it and like doing um, our due diligence on it and making sure that tactic isn't being used for outside harm acts or doesn't have any like negative outside ramifications, we should leave it be and see what use it has to the overall big picture. Uh, con converting racists and having nicest conversations with them is not going to solve racism. It's not going to fix everything. But it might, like you said, make it so there's five, ten, a couple hundred, several hundred fewer um, white nationalists and fascists that they have to kind of call on when it's necessary. Fewer going to these random cities and protests to stir up trouble. Fewer on social media. Um, and then, again, you start to break some of these social cohesion that uh, these folks have. Because once that's gone, they're already kind of ostracized in society. You just need to rip away that social cohesion. So um, I, I hear a lot of where you're coming from on that. Um, but uh, these there's all kinds of things in the guide that people, everybody is not going to like. I mean, there's things about their using the court system. A lot of radicals don't like that. There's things about there about if you might want to arm yourself with firearms. A lot of people have objected to that. Like, you don't have to love everything that's in here. These are just what the options are. These are the workable options. No, yeah. no, you certainly don't need to accept or utilize all of them. I think that's an excellent clarification and distinction. Like, you want some ways to fight fascists. The Washington Post, the New York Times are not going to give you ways to fight fascists. Spencer, we came up with 40 of them. So, like, pick them. I, 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 that, that's kind of what we're going with here. And I think I do happen to think that a lot of these are good, tangible plans. Um, not that I have to prove it to you, because you wrote the fucker. Okay, um, so after that is being proactive um, as far as next step. So we're get started, take action. There's all these different ways to take action to fight fascists. Again, links to the guide in the description, in the show notes. Um, being proactive, what ways can you be proactive in um, fighting fascism? I'm assuming it has to do a lot with addressing the social aspects of it and making it just like less of a s socially cohesive thing to do beforehand. Am I kind of on the right path? Uh, no, this is actually about your own counter-organizing strategies. I think the left is way too much, and this comes up to some of the things we talked about earlier, uh, it goes from like event to event, you know, protest, protest, respond to this, vote in this election, and there's not really much of a long-term um, view of things. Part of this is because the left started defunding um, all of its educational programs and a lot of think tanks and stuff starting, I think, in the 80s and 90s, whereas the right pumps a lot of money into this. This is part of the reason for this. So for the proactive stuff is like what to do in the downtimes. Um, you know, we, we don't want people just responding to, oh, there's a fascist demonstration. Oh, there's paramilitaries in the streets. How do we respond? There's other stuff you need to do that will help facilitate your response um, in particular and help make it your community a um, more difficult place for them to organize. So one of the things is, hope, you know, in downtimes we do this, we'll hold fundraisers because when there is an emergency, when you have to have a demonstration, when you have to respond to people being attacked or injured or things, you're going to need money. All political movements need money. So we tell people to fundraise ahead of time. Um, often there's a big event, there's a crisis, then you need money, then you have to, instead of doing political work, go through a fundraising um, sequence, and that takes a lot of your energy up. And you don't have to do that if you fundraise ahead of time. Uh, a second thing, and this is uh, good, I think, for certain kinds of people, is form an emergency response team. Again, so when you have an emergency, you're not scrambling to find people to go. Um, I cannot tell you how many calls I've gotten in the middle of the night where, you know, 
something's happened, there's been a, a pop-up, an unannounced, you know, Nazi demonstration, or people have been attacked, or people are cornered in a bar, and they can't get out. Um, so have an emergency response team. You have to recruit people who would be uh, useful in this. I mean, this may be self-defense, probably medic training, possibly de-escalation. Um, figure out who these people are and get them together so when you have an emergency, you can call on people who will be able to go and deploy. This is also a good way to make friends when people who aren't really part of your political milieu are threatened and you come and, and, and save them. Like, they're going to like you from then on. I, I've made a few friends friends that way you know that they saw that people are, are, are ready to to um, stand up and respond immediately when they have a problem um, then there's some suggestions about what to do to make um, to sort of a build a sort of um, let's call it like a, an anti-fascist subjectivity in your community uh, it will make it harder for far-right groups to organize and, and to do these things ahead of time. And so one of the things that I stress, and this is a little more of a kind of maybe European or ideologically leftist thing, is to hold memorial events. Um, most communities have had places where the far-right has murdered people or attacked people. There's historic crimes of white nationalism where lynchings were held, you know, where black communities were burned down where there were murders of, of native people, whatever has happened in your community, find out a little bit about its history and go hold memorial events there. Um, I think this really hammers in to people what the stakes of the far right succeeding are, and particularly white nationalists, but I think you can sort of see this stuff more generally. Um, you know, the far right's killed, I think since 1990, probably upwards of 500 people in the United States alone. Certainly, if you look further back, you'll find a lot more, um, you know, uh, and holding memorial events, who, first off, it's hard to object to them. If you hold an anti-racist, a BLM rally, you might have cowboys come up. How are they going to look if you're holding a memorial for somebody that, that they murdered? Um, I, I think it really, it, it's re generally received well, um, and it, it sends a message about what the stakes, what the political stakes are here. So, for example, one thing we did, I think after Charlottesville, I went to Portland, Oregon, and um, I got some people. The cemetery actually stopped us from having a big public thing, but we got about a dozen people, and we went to the grave of Mulugeta Sarah. He was this Ethiopian immigrant who was killed by Nazi skinheads in 1988. A lot of people didn't know he was buried in the city. Like, his story's a little well-known. So we laid a wreath and, you know, uh, uh, read something about it at his gravesite and then tried to encourage people to have memorial events. He was murdered in the city proper, you know, at the site of his murder every year to sort of, you know, um, just bring this into people's consciousness about things. So also when people are, are you can do this, uh, I go into this later, uh, with the, um, if you can find members of the families of people who've been killed or people who've been injured, you can do this work with them. And I think that creates a much more powerful link with broader communities. That, that's all really eye-opening stuff that I don't think, I think that's the answer to when people say, well, what more do you do than vote? I mean, these are all things. How create the space or the environment so that anti-fascism is just like a part of your community. If there have been memorial services that maybe you don't know, but you've passed by one or you know someone who has been to them about this thing, that even affects your sort of passing relationship to that movement, that cause, that idea. And so that is really useful for that. I think 
also, yeah, just people always want to hit the panic button and think that their like team will assemble. But yeah, that it takes work. It takes relationship building. Anything, it's like friendship or anything else. It takes relationship building in order for you to build bonds and build coalitions that will then show up for you um, and show up with you in the fights for justice. That involves showing up for them. That involves even kind of like making yourself known. Like, yeah, there's a fine line if you're doing anti-fascist work of like making yourself known and not too known that we talked about earlier. But I think this is all very important because this is the stuff that makes politics kind of move and go. And it doesn't work. Like, like the, the response to fascist movements and things like that doesn't work when we... Um, don't have any groundwork laid. We don't have any foundation for people to come out and fight this thing. Even though it should feel obvious, we need to create some more reasons, I think, as well as we do that. Really fast, I know we're like running out of time, but I want to get through the some of the rest of the guide. So part four is counter-demonstrate. Uh, go into that, and how can people like sort of... Yeah, I guess this is just literally like, okay, uh, alt-writers and far-right people are protesting. What are the steps for counter-protesting? So this just walks people through what you need for a counter-demonstration. If you've never organized them, they're a lot of work. Um, I think at this point in the game, you might want to decide whether you want to have one or not. Uh, I think before, definitely yes. Now, maybe not. In Portland, again, last week, they held the counter-demonstrations well away. They didn't confront them. Um, you know, usually I tell people to hold the demonstration within sight and sound distance, but I, I think they were right to hold it at, you know, a few miles away. Um, if you've never, this is a bit counterintuitive, but this is actually a really good place for people who um, uh, can't go out into the streets to get involved because there's a ton of work that are involved in big demonstrations and a lot of it can be done at home, uh, making banners, arranging for housing from people out of town, again, fundraising, doing media, uh, being a comms team. I mean, often organizers, when they go to the demonstration they're, or counter demonstration, they're too busy to be on social media. So you need, you know, you could be somebody just sitting at home running the Twitter feed for it. Um, and then afterwards, there's lots of cleanup work. If people are arrested, then there's legal fights. You have to get lawyers. You have to, again, do fundraising. It's very stressful for the person. So there's a lot of work to be done with demonstrations that don't involve going out in the streets. Um, and this is a, 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 an event that takes a lot of, a lot of, it's usually short in duration, but it takes a, a lot of different people and a lot of energy going into it. So this is, I walk people through the steps of doing this. Yeah, and it's the, like a not high risk, high reward per se, but even though it's a short kind of demonstration, it's very important to have this like to show that much like a gang sort of scenario thing like you're describing, if like what happened with me in Berkeley, if the Proud Boys keep coming and their show of force is stronger and stronger and their numbers keep getting bigger and bigger, then that's less of an incentive for them to stop. If the Proud Boys start showing up and there's an equal number or double or triple the number of counter-protesters and they can't do much of their stuff, and even though the police are there likely defending them, um, they can't really make their presence known, then you'll start to realize after a little bit while they, like anyone else, go, hey, this shit sucks. It's getting kind of old now. Let's um, maybe like try somewhere else or just like do a different tactic and strategy. So I'm glad that you don't sugarcoat it and say like this is detailed stuff you should go into it organize uh, um starting counter demonstrations is very difficult and especially in this um 
political climate as we're leading up to the election, you want to be very cautious about it, but it takes a lot of work and it's a team to do it. And um, it does like seem very crucial with this. And when it comes to being supportive, which is like the last step, that also having that counter demonstration, I think helps with that support as well. Um, what are some of the other ways that people can be supportive in fighting fascists? So yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of support work that's important here because there is a risk at this stuff and there are people who are hurt by the far right. And I think um, it's unfortunate how little support people get from our political movements and that should be expanded. So the far right loves to threaten people. They just, it's just like their favorite thing. So you should support people being threatened in whatever help they need. They may need help like clearing their digital uh, footprint um, they may need help um, securing the, uh, their, their house or their, their property in case there's a home invasion. Um, help people who've been arrested. Uh, the whole process, um, you know, once you, you've been booked uh, of getting bail or bond, going through a court trial, you know, dealing with getting a lawyer. It's all very intensive. It's very stressful. It can be very expensive. Uh, people need support with this. That can be as simple as showing up into the courtroom when they have court dates. People really, really appreciate that. I, I can tell you, I spent a long, long time in court. Um, it's very important to them psychologically. If people are imprisoned for their actions, it's important to support them. It can be very expensive uh, to be in prison. It can run up to like $10,000 a year if you want to give a, a, a prisoner money in their commissary or give their, you know, a pay for phone calls, send them books help their family come and visit them. Often they send prisoners really far away from their communities where they're based. Um, so that's a thing. Again, that's a very safe thing you can do. You can do it at home. There's not really any exposure. It's just you interfacing with the prisoner. And it really means a lot to them. It's hard when there's these, these political movements that get people in trouble, and then sometimes they don't get support and they feel like they've been abandoned. Sometimes feel like they've been pushed into things and then abandoned, whether that's true or not. Um, we don't want people to feel this way. I mean, we don't want their family and their friends to feel this way. And then uh, the last thing was one of my favorites, a fascist, real like white nationalists in particular, tend to recruit from very discreet communities. They go into like the skinhead or punk rock scene or neo-folk scene. Um, they go into specific religious uh, communities of Satanists, heathens, which are Northern European pagans, certain um, Eastern European Orthodox uh, Christian churches uh, and recruit there. And what almost always happens is people in those communities that are being targeted for recruitment, online gamers is a very popular one now, um, will be unhappy with this and start to push back, but they may be outnumbered, the community may not be sympathetic, the community actually might be sympathetic to the white nationalists. So we encourage finding where people are pushing back and supporting them with whatever they need. Um, this is starting to happen right now in the yoga community. QAnon, this far-right conspiracy theory that involves pedophiles, supposed pedophiles and Satanists, have gotten their claws deeply in uh, into the holistic um, health community and, and in the yoga community. And there's a, a, a well-known yoga influencer who's starting to do counter-propaganda against it and get her friends to do this too. And I think this is absolutely brilliant because it cuts them off at their base. This is where they're getting new people and we want to stop this. Um, and so I really encourage uh, finding people who are pushing back inside of these communities and figuring out, you know, supporting them in whatever way they need to do it. The, the members of these communities themselves are the best people to push back against this stuff. Someone, this is a problem inside the Satanist community. If, if you try to go into the, 
you know, say like Nazi Satanists are bad and you're not a Satanist, like they're not going to listen to you. They're going to think you're attacking all of them. Um, this is really best done by other Satanists. And in fact, this is happening where there are anti-fascist Satanists who are trying to push the Nazis out of their milieu. And so, you know, it's it's their place to do it. They know the internal dialogue's the best. They know the way to do this best. But you can back them up and provide them with the support that they that they would like to have. Yo, I'm still feeling some type of way from the way that you describe it. There are yoga instructor like this QAnon yoga like that has I, I I that one statement knocked me down a couple steps with like how much hope I have in this country. <laughs> Honestly, right there, like that that right did it. That is wild because usually you even expect yoga as being like oh it's a hippie leftist thing but no it shows how um prudent and how important social capital can be and um not just the these movements growing and gaining power but also fighting these movements i do like how you said that like it, it's someone from that community someone from um either the Satanist community or yoga community any of that stuff that's the best um person to like deprogram and talk to these people because it's like hey, one of us is talking to us. It's like that in any sort of context. You usually don't listen to outsiders, but if someone you trust based on your social boundaries of your community says something, you'll maybe not instantly agree, but you'll at least hear that out and give it more of an audience back then, which is why it's important to have um, co-conspirators who are former people who are like around these sort of spaces. So um, I, I think that really highlights that right there. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you know, the Nazis ha have a long tradition of being involved in yoga. In fact, there was like a uh, a Nazi commune in the 70s in North Carolina, and the, the leader of it got really into yoga and apparently wrote a couple books about Nazi philosophy and yoga. So, <laughs> what a country, man. This is a melting pot where all different cultures can come together. You have a little bit of Nazism from here, and then you have a little bit of yoga from another part of the world. It just comes together in this beautiful, what a great society. Um, I met, a, I met a black Nazi once. He was sent in to spy on us. It was a really interesting experience. No way. That is... <sighs> yeah, yeah. I actually met him as he was undercover pretending to be an anti-fascist, and then he later got outed. How was he outed? Um, he had been... This is a funny story. He had been a cab driver in New York, and he had... Um, uh, there was a scandal. He would wear a swastika armband. He was this Dominican guy. He was a black Dominican, and he'd wear a swastika armband. And people complained. And so, you know, he got fired from his job, and th this was in the media. And then, so later, this guy was hanging around. He wanted to be involved in counter-organizing work. I was introduced to him, uh, and I kind of had to speak to him. A friend of mine who was black introduced him and kind of koshered him. So I was like, I don't want to talk to this guy, but if you say he's cool, like, you know, who am I to question you? But I was like, something's wrong here. He started showing up to events, and then someone had seen the media um, stuff about him being fired from his job as a cabbie, and, and there were pictures of him, and then saw him at the meetings, and were like, it's the same guy. So people did some in, you know, digging into him and ended up he was actually tied to the big Nazi party in the U.S., the National Socialist Movement. We found a picture of him at one of their events with their leader. I don't know what was going on between them, how he thought about this stuff, but like at some point it doesn't matter, right? They're working together. Uh, and it, so the people who, the guy who introduced me to him confronted him, uh, which was good. And, and they were like, we know your real name. They're like, hey, you say you're so-and-so. He's like, yeah, they're like, show us your ID. There's a video of this on YouTube. They're like, show us your ID. 
we think your real name's X. We think you're working with this Nazi group. And the guy just Damn. sort of like walked off and was never heard from again. Damn. Yeah. There's all kinds of crazy things that you will run into. People you don't expect to be involved in these movements are involved in these movements. It's not just all, you know, straight white men. It is a lot of them. You know, there's a lot of closeted people. There's a lot of people of mixed racial backgrounds who are repressing this. And it's like coming out. You find a lot of people from, you know, a Jewish, you often mixed Jewish backgrounds who get involved in, in anti-Semitic movements. It creates all kinds of issues with people's identity. And, and it's a way for people because it's so emotionally based. They get all kinds of odd people get involved in these movements. Goddamn. Yeah, that's. I feel like having your finger on the pulse of these things, you could talk a lot about this stuff. Um, and like, I, I asked you, I, I can't, I feel like I have so many questions about this, but there's not enough time. Um, it, it's really incredible though. Like, yeah, that's not just the Dave Chappelle skit. It's you actually have these people who are, um, yeah, just in their ways. It just shows like the hell of uh, American education or whatever. Like not that everyone should turn out a certain way and that the government should teach that, but, um, how you end up somehow following through the system and end up being like a black or any other type of marginalized group and then siding with the people who want to exterminate, use the word exterminate you and the marginalized group will always be extremely wild to me. But I, I want, for my last question, I want to touch on the fact that you do have 15 years of knowledge and you've been like doing all this scholarship and, um, far right and Nazi movements and growing in the United States. And so I know you talked about, um, you mentioned sovereign citizens earlier, and also in your bio, you mentioned um, siege culture and accelerationism, all these things that um, are out there and related to this sort of world. And mainly, I know like siege culture and sovereign citizens, at least to my knowledge, those are things that are kind of like from the 20th century, like they started in the 20th century as far as like, um, where that history comes from, but could you kind of paint a picture for how all of that stuff um, relates to the movements and the tactics of today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they both actually come out of around the 1970s. Uh, uh, sovereign citizens come out of the work of a group called Posse Comitatus, who are sort of helped set up a lot of the militia and patriot movement. If you ever hear people say like, um, the sheriff is the only, is the highest elected official in the land and can decide what's constitutional. This comes out of Posse Comitatus. It was, there was basically a split in the white supremacist movement after the failure of this, after the failure of states' rights and after the success of the civil rights movement. So one group basically became, they were like, became outright white supremacists, that, you know, who became less patriotic, used to be able like a patriotic American who could still believe in an all-white community. And so they were like, well, we have to create a white ethno state, and the Nazism became dominant within that strain. Um, the other was reacting to some of this stuff. They didn't like Nazism because National Socialism had a lot of government intervention and wanted to create a big super state. Um, they wanted a highly decentralized a kind of white supremacy. And so instead of states' rights, they basically moved to county rights. And as part of this, it created this whole, you know, a lot of this stuff is very mythical. It's not based on social science or biological science, even though they make appeals to this stuff. It's based on myths of who the nation or the race is or, or Christians are or, or the family is, um, not facts. And so they created this really crackpot reading of the Constitution. Over the years, this evolved, this one piece of the movement evolved into what are called sovereign citizens. 
They're people who don't believe. They basically believe that they can decide what's legal or not themselves. They often don't believe that any, especially federal laws, apply to them. Um, they're kind of like uh, um, right-wing hyper-individualists, uh, often very mixed in with conspiracy theories. You'll find them amongst the militias. They get in shootouts with the police a lot. They're very violent. Um, again, some of the weirdness of these politics, a whole strain of it has gotten involved um, in the black community, and they're sort of adjacent to black nationalist politics. You'll, you'll see people claiming that they can't be convicted on drug charges. It got involved in Baltimore for some reason. It was established there as it's one of the places. And so these ideas are just making their way through our society in different ways. Uh, sometimes this stuff isn't political at all, and these people are involved in all kinds of scams and grifts, especially like passing fake checks and things like that. I don't know how many people use checks anymore, but that used to be the big thing. Um, the other thing, I was talking about siege culture. This is a, an accelerationism, which has been a very worrisome thing for the last few years. The pro-terrorism, the new wave of pro-terrorism neo-Nazi groups like Adam Waffen Division and uh, Foyer Krieg Division and a bunch of other smaller groups um, that, that openly espouse terrorism follow a philosophy called accelerationism. In short, it's that things have to get worse before the Nazi revolution happens, that it can't, uh, um, that they, they uh, I think, probably pretty rightly understand they're not going to build a successful neo-Nazi movement in the U.S. using legal means. Um, they can't really just launch armed attacks, per se, and build a big uh, army. So they just want to cre help create chaotic, a chaotic situation where they think that the society will collapse and then they'll, they'll have their moment to build a big movement. Um, some of this stuff comes out of, again, uh, white supremacist politics of the 1970s. There was a group, the American Nazi Party, that was founded in the late 50s. Um, they changed their name at the end of the 60s. They created a lot of slogans we still uh, hear now, like white power came out of a slogan that came out of them. Um, and again, the use of the, uh, the swastika, just the very idea that there would be an openly neo-Nazi movement in the United States. So one of the members, there was a there was a bunch of arguments about how they should go forward. They used to hold big protests to kind of like Charlottesville. And one of the arguments why some of the people were like, no, legal work won't succeed. We have to do armed uh, guerrilla warfare. They were sort of copying left-wing groups of the, of the new left. And then it sort of went even further. And they're like, no, we need to promote. They started promoting serial killers. Race, there was a bunch of racist serial killers in the 70s. And they're like, no, we need to promote things like this and just like random bombings. We just need to destabilize the whole society. And then we'll sort of have, we need to promote the left getting in a guerrilla, having a guerrilla warfare with the, um, the liberal center. And then this will create, as things collapse, this will create space for us to have an emergent, you know, militant Nazi movement. And so these ideas, the main guy who was espousing this was called James Mason. He's still alive. He wrote uh, a newsletter that became a book called Siege, and this is what Siege culture is. They tell their hashtag is Read Siege. Um, it's this 500-page book where he develops this philosophy. He became friends with Charles Manson, and then started. He formed a group that like worshipped Manson as their guru. Um, yeah, this is the really weird fringes. But somehow this book became a cult uh, book. It got picked up by people on the alt right, and they it's become the bible of the. Um, really pro-terrorism wing of the, the young neo-Nazi movement. And we're very worried that if Trump loses, of course, I hope Trump loses, but that if he does lose, um, that this wing in particular will spin off, uh, will feel that they're boxed in of, of uh, you know, they don't have any more opportunities. 
to do mass organizing, or people will flood into this wing and take more extreme, you know, launch terror terror attacks. Like uh, a lot of us think this is a real possibility. Not that we think it necessarily will happen, but that we think it is a real possibility that it might happen if Trump loses. So it's a lot of, if I'm hearing you correctly, a lot of the throughway between um, a lot of this development in the latter half of the 20th century to today. There seems to be this sort of, <laughs> let's say, um, let's say playing around a lot with information. They're just kind of picking information from wherever. A lot of it's like urban myths. A lot of it's like spins on religious principles to kind of justify themselves in their presence, which is what's happening today when people say that, look, there's this mass issue with um, the great replacement and all those kinds of things. So there's, a, there's definitely a through line with that. Um, there's also the social ways they try to connect, the way they try to um, infiltrate politics and see, do we, you know, start talking about buses and taxation instead of saying inward, 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 like that one famous um, Republican strategist said. Um, There's like that side of things versus going all the way into, yeah, accelerationism, which is we need to hurry up the end times. Let's start blowing up some buildings and going on these massive terroristic incidents um, in order to like speed up the coming of the race war so that we're ready and they're not. Like these are unfortunately um, things that were very prevalent when like my parents were kids and stuff like that. Some of them even growing up in the South, but now I'm their age and these are things I'm dealing with. So it it just goes to show what was learned and what wasn't over the past um, 50, 60, 70 years or so and what is happening today. Um, there's definitely lessons to be taken in how all the stuff was dealt with then, how it was allowed to grow and what we could do in the future. Um, yeah, this is all happening before, or like this episode is being recorded and will be released before the election happens. But I think all, regardless of what happens, these tools and tactics are useful um, not just for fighting fascism, but just like general movement building and coalition building more broadly. And the frameworks that you provide for people, I think, will do a lot to get them to start thinking in the right direction for getting on the offensive for the fascist threat in the United States instead of constantly being on the defensive. We prefer to have them on the defensive because, say for accelerationism, they are um, much weaker in that spot. Um, so with that, I want to thank you very much, Spencer, for coming on and um, describing to our audience and taking time out of your day to kind of paint a picture for the audience about 40 ways to fight fascists. Um, is there anything that you felt like I didn't ask that you really want to convey before we like go? You know, I'm just going to add to one thing you said. that Fascists target so many different kinds of people. They target people of color. They target immigrants and refugees. They target Jews. They target Muslims. They target feminists. They target LGBTQ people, you know, disabled people sometimes. The list goes on. This actually creates an ideal opportunity for us to make alliances with other groups that we don't normally work with. Since they target all of us, those of us who are those from targeted groups, along with people who aren't targeted, who want to push back, we're pushing back, um, it gives us an opportunity to work together with people we might not normally work together with on the basis of a shared interest. So it, it's actually a case of what's good for me is good for you, and it becomes very reciprocal. And I think we really need to um, maximize those opportunities. Um, people need to get used to working with others who aren't like them. Um, and I think the best way to do this is is finding these areas where we have we have common interests, where 
it's not just about, I'm a little um, cynical about the idea of only acting for other people. I think it's great when you can act for yourself and act for other people at the same time. I think that's a really a special moment and it should really be emphasized that there's a lot of opportunities here. Spencer, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Where can folks find you and the guide? Uh, my, the guide is on my website. It's spencersunshine.com slash 40 ways, F-O-R-T-Y-W-A-Y-S. Um, I'm on all the socials. I'm probably most active on Twitter, which is transform6789. And if you'd like to support my work, I don't receive any institutional funding. Uh, you can support me on Patreon. Yes, and I'll link to the Patreon and everything else you are doing in the description of this video and the show notes for the podcast feed for listeners who are curious and uh, finding out more about Spencer's incredible work. Thank you very much for coming on and um, stay safe out there. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs>